Hello and welcome to Children of the 80s podcast, our second podcast in two years. We like to do them right when they're ready, yeah. not before they come. <laughs> And the movie is Until the End of the World. Which, in a very special edition of Children of the 80s, was not actually made in the 80s before we get a lot of angry letters from our many devoted fans. When was it made, Leon? It's true. It was made in 1991. But, you know, it has a very, very 80s... Well, it's a futuristic vibe, but it's got a very kind of 80s futuristic vibe. That's exactly right. I also think the 80s is a decade that deserved to go on for 12 or 15 years, so it picked up really the early 90s as well. Totally. Just sort of bumped into there. All good. Yeah. So why are we talking about Until the End of the World, Diana? Well, you know, this is an interesting film for me because I actually had somebody in the 90s encouraging me determinedly to watch this movie, but they, and they would be the first to admit this, were a fan of fairly pretentious movies. Mm. And so I actually avoided it. I avoided it for a really, really long time, more than 20 years, in fact. (laughs) And so I only have recently seen this movie and kind of wish, you know, I'd watched it a long time ago. But there's something absolutely fascinating about watching this film for the first time now because the film is set in the future. It's set in 1999. Mm. And in this weird way, there are a number of extraordinarily prescient things that have come to bear now, but didn't come to bear at the end of the 90s. I'd just like to compliment you on the use of the word prescient. That, uh, I think, added a lot to this podcast. Thank you. My, my vocabulary is extensive, if yes. you listen carefully. I've, 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 I've heard that. So I have a, a very different history of this movie. Which is, I watched this movie a few times, probably, in 1994-1995, back in a... Uh, as a child of the 80s, uh, that was my sort of, I was, you know, sort of 18, 19, and I was working on a cattle Such ranch. A and baby. Uh, well, still a child of the 80s. Anyway, so if you are kind of living in the Sierra Nevada desert and, and with, without a lot of company, this movie, it felt very significant and meaningful to me at the time. So, Well, and tell us a little bit more about that. In what way could you connect to the idea of somebody crashing in France and being pursued by somebody who wants to get the thing that, you know... So let me start by saying that I would agree with you that this movie is not entirely unpretentious as much as I liked it. There is a little bit of it's all part of a bigger picture, there's a bigger plan, but I think the movie works really hard to connect everyday people into something very heroic. And I think when you're 18 or 19, that's that's a story that, that resonates with you. This uh, idea that see, you're about to stumble onto something big. Yeah, I'm not sure I, that's what I took away from it. I mean, for me, the absolute fascination was really with the ways, and I would really like to go piece by piece and talk about the ways in which this movie was prescient. So I, I think want, it's pronounced prescient, isn't it? Really? No. Right. Well, maybe you're American and I'm Australian and, you know, you're... That's slightly just, ignorant. That's, that's, let's, let's go with <laughs> that. Let's move on. Okay, let's talk about the ways in which this movie... Okay, so... so no, no, just, no, no, so, no. I'm just going to reframe it for you, which is the movie came out in 1991 in France, and I think it, later that year in the US, but it was set in 1999. So from their point of view, they were looking eight years into the future. Absolutely, into the future. And so here are the things that if you watch it as a person of the... 2019s. 19s, is that a thing? Um, you might find yourself f- thinking that some of these things are extraordinarily uh, familiar. It's a little Present. Bit... <laughs> Present. 
No, I was trying to say prescient. <laughs> yeah, well, not very well. Yeah, I got it wrong. Anyway, so here are a couple of the things. At one point, the characters all get grossly absorbed in devices that are playing back to them perceptions of themselves. So in this case, they have the ability to record and watch their dreams. And the act of recording and watching their dreams is so fascinating as they look at these images of themselves that they become withdrawn into these insulated, solitary, inward-looking experiences they where they're devices. staring. Yeah, yeah, well, they're staring at these devices. Which look a lot like phones, iPads. They're kind of things. grainier, worse yeah. reception, but they're about the same size. But it's, it's, so it's both the kind of the addictive idea that you're kind of retreating into something, but it's the selfies. Mm. And, and that's the bit that the idea that you might have something that's played back to you and become so engrossing to just kind of see yourself. So that was something that seemed really ahead of its time. It's like a forerunner of Instagram. Totally, totally. And in the end, they actually have to detox this woman by, I think, just putting her in a field or something that's fenced in. Well, they just in. drag her away. Yeah, well, no, the, the, no, what happens is she has the device, and then it runs out of batteries, and she's completely inconsolable when it so, runs out of batteries. So yep. One, yep, one, right? Yep. Device addiction. Two... The idea that they're all on some interconnected, you know, technology, globally interconnected. Now, it was the early 90s, so... So, 91... Internet, you know, we're on the edges of it. But this movie would have been written, made, shot, 89, 90, when it really was not the World Wide Web. And and, and they do have something that is recognizably the internet. And the whole kind of... The whole catastrophe that's looming over the movie is the idea that there is an Indian-controlled satellite that might be about to be exploded. And if it goes down, then everybody will lose this kind of connection to, you know, what is effectively the internet. And and everything will stop. Well, also civilization and electricity and things like that, right? No, 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 it's not electricity. It's the connection. It's the connection to these things. Okay. And so, so that, again, two things. One, that India is the kind of rising economy, which, again, in the 90s wasn't inconceivable but i don't know how many globally kind of dominating technologies and satellites india had at the time so that's number two yeah number three they've got in-car gps technology yes that's pretty awesome that feels very i I remember seeing this in 94 and thinking that's cool and futuristic and then you see it now and you're like well of course and it talks to her remember and it talks to her and i think the thing that's really interesting about it too it's not like those it's not like other science fiction movies where these things are sort of really self-conscious or the point like they're just there as kind of a backdrop to the plot so there's something much more realistic about it it really feels like that the the director just kind of popped over and had a little sneak peek into today and just well, kind to, of to, took to, it back to, in the memory that's right so, so to talk about that in a little bit more detail so she has an in-car gps which looks a fair bit like a gps and it talks to her but she's driving an older car so it's actually, I remember at the t- again, at the time, 94, that felt very incongruous. She's driving a car from the, I don't know, it looked like a 70s Citroën or something like that with this GPS in it. Today, of course, that seems totally normal. Of course, you have an old car with a GPS in it. Yeah. Um, so yep. that, I thought that was quite thoughtful and well done. What's one that stood out for you? So looking back at it now, the video phones. So mm. they, have, they have video phones that, again, they're sort of bigger and clunkier, you know, thicker and heavier than they are today. But... Actually, it looks a lot like Skyping or FaceTiming somebody. And, yeah. and there was nothing like that in 94. That was, that was completely futuristic. Now, what was bad about this movie? 
It was a bit. It was not a short movie. So, in fact, I find this really interesting. So, in the US, it was 158 minutes long. Not short. In Europe, however, people with higher attention spans, 174 minutes. We Americans are notoriously impatient. And in Japan, I guess, uh, where the directors expected this would be the most patient set of audiences, 239 minutes. That's a culture that stretches back millennia. They've (laughs) They've learned how to wait. And also the kind of fun thing about this is it just very comfortably switches between cultures, languages, countries in a pretty kind of eclectic mix of countries. Like they're in Japan... They're in Outback Australia. They're in Russia. They're in Russia. They're in Portugal they start at one in France. point. Yeah, there's a little bit all over. Yeah. The the I mean not not only is it switch across countries, but it also completely switches themes and switches the feel of the movie. Right? The first half of the movie, give or take, is sort of a you know, sort of gumshoeish kind of, you know, adventure race around the world, kind of chasing and being chased. And then it completely switches gears when we get to Australia. Then felt like it became a very sort of meditative contemplation of consciousness and humanity or something like that. Right, The pace slowed right back and it became much more about people and dreams and how does everything fit together. To me, it felt like two different movies between the, you know what, everything up to Australia and then after. Of course, the other awesome thing about this movie that held up extraordinarily well is the really, really robust and amazing soundtrack. Fantastic soundtrack. So this is kind of taking me back to... I mean, this is the best of the best. It's got Talking Heads, it's got Depeche Mode, Elvis so, Costello. I was going to say R.E.M., but now I feel bad because... I don't know if I can say R.E.M. if you just said it's the best of the best. What, what do you mean? Oh, I'm, I'm worried you'll, you'll think of that. I think R.E.M. is the best of the best. R.E.M. are pretty good. You, you take, you know, kind of big stuff from the 80s and the 90s. I, I, I okay, yeah, R.E.M. so it's got R.E.M. Yep. It's not you too. Katie Lang. I can slip you too in there. Someone you haven't heard of from for a while. Did you mention T-Bone Burnett already? I did not mention T-Bone Burnett. Maybe T-Bone somebody... Burnett is the best of the best. <laughs> And then, of course, the... Wait, wait, no, no, we have to keep talking about the music, because I have to tell you... I'm about to talk about the music. I'm about to talk about... You know, and then, of course, the absolute highlight of the soundtrack, the, the, you know, the theme song, U2's Until the End of the World. Yes. Um, I just said U2. I said U2 already. I credit for that Yes, but you didn't, you didn't, like, say that it was the, you know, the song. So did the song come before the movie? I assume the song was written for the movie. I feel like at this point in time... Now, I don't want to be the first one to say the director's name here. Oh, because you don't know how to pronounce it, neither do I. Well, is, is it Vim Wenders or is it Wim Wenders? I was just going to spell it. Is it Vim Wenders? I was just going to spell it every single time. Yeah, I just don't think you game. can do that. WW. Again, you know, the, initials. The, the slightly pretentious rec- recommender of this film certainly would have said Vim Wenders, but, you know, I kind of wrap all of that in, the, in that bubble of um, mm. potential pretension around this, so I don't really, yeah, yeah don't know. So, so you were saying something about Wim or Vim? Well, I, I was saying that at this point in time, like, he was a bit of a darling of the... So you think he could have gotten you two to write a song? Yes, just yes. I think at this point in his career, at that point in time, he totally could have. Also on the soundtrack, Nana Cherry? Yes, yes, absolutely. So the thing that I have to tell you is that I actually... I don't know if I bought it or, like, I someone made might have made a tape of it for me, but I actually had the soundtrack for a number of years. Well, I, I listen to it a lot. I think, you should, I think you should dig it out again because it is a great soundtrack. Yeah. And it just kind of keeps getting better and better. Like you just think you're done and then another great the T-Bone Burnett has not aged as well as some <laughs> of the others. You know, and I wanted to just loop back a little bit to the length of 
the film because, you know, we were talking about the fact that Japan got the 239-minute version. But well, if you were the really extra keen, 81 minutes. Like, I feel like the version that we saw must have been the 239-minute version because it went on and on <laughs> and on. I don't think... I think, it was I think we had to watch it over three nights, right? Like, it was like bedtime now. The 72-hour version. <laughs> well, so the director's cut was 287 minutes. That that's is a just, serious commitment. That's just silly. There's also something called the trilogy cut, which I don't know if that means that it itself is like three separate movies. You know, I have to say, actually, it felt like it was three separate movies. It felt like it was meant to be three separate movies. And then they kind of ran out of puff and they stuck them all together. You could actually make, you could actually watch this as three short movies, I think. Maybe that's what the trilogy cut is. I also thought, you know, so the thing that we didn't talk about, you talk about how it kind of shifted gear and got got a little bit more contemplative towards the end. But of course, the way in which the woman was cured of her addiction and he's cured of his device addiction is, you know, the Aboriginal elders save him. That's true. By extracting them from the technological world. So at that point, they're living quite kind of in an integrated way with his dad, who is there trying to design this technology. They're, they're trying to design this technology and the, they're living in a very integrated way the Aboriginal elders and Aboriginal community, and then this scientist who's doing this research. And so it's a kind of interesting setup where they're, um, what looks like they're on traditional lands, they're living in a, mm-hmm. in a kind of cave, but with all of this technology and, you know, very modern Aboriginal community, but who's also kind of still um, got really probably what's an ideal balance across the kind of modern and and uh, traditional well, world. And, and they go back and forth, right? So they go very high tech, then they go very traditional additional after the and then the, after the satellite explodes and then they come back to the technology no but he's he's kind of been in a bunker building this thing that's true no he has been yep. anyway um and the but the solution the the cure for the addiction for the technology mm-hmm. technological addiction is detox as it as it kind of is in in the yep. real world in these days so again another kind of very predictive um plot element and but the but the the people who have the common sense to be able to see that this is a solution are a couple of aboriginal elders who not only take um take the person people away but sleep in a particular spot and in between the two of them outdoors and it's sort of the yeah. first restful sleep and they're kind of able to free themselves. And the interesting thing, again, as we've said, it's not just about the technological addiction, but it's the kind of the, the, the selfie piece, right? It's this, this yeah. self-internal yeah. kind of obsession yeah. with your yeah. own imagery, your own dreams and, and kind of this inward-looking thing. And so this is a process of, of kind of freeing them. And, and you know, I mean... I guess it just spoke to me mm. because yeah, yeah, yeah. we are living with this tech, you know, device addiction all the time. It's something I think many of us struggle with. And, you know, that sense I get sometimes of relief. So I, I use um, the, you know, all these kind of tricks and traps to get myself off my device. But sometimes at the end of the evening, if it runs out of batteries, I feel this like sense of relief. Hmm, that's oh, I can just go to yeah, bed yeah. now. You know, I'm free. Um, and yet we can't untether ourselves from technology, not really, because it's so integrated into our work, unless we kind of untether ourselves from our lives more broadly. So, yeah, I just thought that was really interesting. Yeah, and again, enormously predictive for a movie made in 1991, right? And so probably written and shot in 89, 90. Um, let's talk about the ending a little bit, because one of the things that 
struck me about this movie, we talked about how it feels like three separate movies, right? How it changes so dramatically and how the plot changes from being a, you know, kind of a chase to something much more contemplative. Um, it feels like that just keeps on going when the movie finishes because really what happens is at the end of the movie, they've been through this whole cycle of looking at their dreams, through the digital addiction, through the digital detox. And then they kind of all just walk away from the from the site and that's and that's that yes and the whole thing in a way the whole movie feels a bit like that like when they kind of move from country to country and scene to scene there, there is a sense of not quite resolving like each piece not kind of resolving and it's just sort of moving on to the next thing which which feels very realistic right that is indeed how life works and of course we've all been in situations where you have a very intense relationship or experience and then everybody just leaves and that's that not generally something you see in movie making right that no, sense of just no. life that moves on and you everybody goes on no that's right and you don't have these neat resolutions to all the kind of pieces and when we started making this podcast and we, when we watched this film while there was a lot of stuff that seemed familiar kind of eerily familiar in terms of the technology stuff we weren't uh, well of course you know climate change hanging over all of our heads but um, we're now currently in coronavirus lockdown and so that sense of, because the other thing that's, that, that's really interesting about this is the whole world is going to be impacted by this event. That's true. Right? So there's this Absolutely. global yep. connectivity, everybody impacted by the same event, everybody wanting kind of a safe outcome, but not really feeling like it's in their control. And so, you know, I just think that that was kind of interesting too, because that's certainly how it feels now, like here we all are facing the same issue and, you know, all wanting the same set of outcomes, which his, there's been very few times in history when that's really been the case. Yeah, truly global event. So I always thought of it as, you know, I mean, it, I guess it's such a common kind of plot point. The aliens are coming to invade, you know, there's infighting and in order to kind of sort it out, the humans have to stop fighting with each other. And there's definitely a bit of that to this film as well. Mm. Now, I do have to say one thing about the very, very, very ending, which is... I like the idea they all just sort of walk away and move on to the next thing. You do then see her in a space station with uh, some sort of Greenpeace successor, and a screen pops up that shows the pollution percentage on uh, Earth, land, and uh, Earth, sky, and sea. And it's like 41% and 32%. I did think to myself, I don't think that's how they're going to be measuring pollution from space in the... Uh, in the year 19, in the late 90s. Yeah. Um, yep. How do, how do you think that'll... Look, we'll just have to, we'll just have to wait and find out. Right? It's still <laughs> six years away, and, uh, you know, when the Indian satellite goes off. The other thing they did pick up well, they picked up hyperinflation in Russia, so it's going to cost them 5,000 rubles to sleep on a couch in a hotel, because it's yes. very crowded. Yes, we, we should be We should be watching a lot more of Vin Bender's movies to pick up, uh, I guess, stock tips and more predictions, because he, he seems to be plugged into what's going on. Very much. It really, yeah. As we said earlier, like, it really did feel like he just kind of popped in a time machine, saw, saw all his stuff, and uh, seen came it back. Seen briefly, because he got some yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like, like, seen it through sort of a, a slightly filmy lens, <laughs> um, didn't quite get all the context and detail. You know, it's like an alien kind of saw it and went back and tried to describe it and recreate it. But really, really interesting. And in a way where a lot of other stuff doesn't age well, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. maybe he and Jules Verne, like they're the two guys who kind of have the... Had the... It's good company for Ben. Uh, totally, cool, so. totally. So, so, I mean, you know, I don't know that I've got the time to watch this film again anytime soon. 
but but you could watch Trilogy it again. Card, you could, you could watch it yeah. again, right? Yeah, there, oh, there's, absolutely. There, there's yeah, yeah. there's there's a lot there's a lot to unpack. There is there is a lot to unpack. And yeah. it, okay, so, and and just the writing holds up, the acting holds up. Um, the the even though the world is now, now this weird, the the world he creates is this odd combination of futuristic and dated. Even that combination feels quite good, right? Like I, I mm. still. Um, I'd happily immerse myself in that world again. And the interesting thing too, actually, about that 80s part of it is that in a way the 80s, even though, yeah, yeah, it's retro, but we're all, maybe it's just our age, but it, it'll kind of always feel a bit modern and edgy for me. Yeah, yeah. You know, the sort of Robert Palmer, like, bold colours. There's a fascination with that futuristic flavour that I think will always have that it's slightly over yeah it's sort of the the echo of the jetsons you know space stuff it still feels kind of yeah yeah yeah. um forward looking somehow so you know i i i rate this movie i i think well worth the time and investment but yeah spread it spread it over a few yeah it is a bit of time Yeah. yeah well thank you very much for listening that finishes this episode where we talk about until the end of the world I'm Jamie. And I'm Liana. And we'll see you next time for another episode of Children of the Earth.